chapter 25. Uh, we've had been out of that for a couple of weeks. Uh, last uh, week before, you know, we had uh, Joe and Jim here, and we had our New Year's Bible conference, and that was a phenomenal time we had together. And then last week, uh, you know, I preached a, a New Year's message to you, um, you know, after the credible Bible conference that we had. And uh, last week I preached out of Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, and I preached to you about God's handwriting on the wall, uh, in particular to the king of Babylon uh, in that particular chapter. It was a time when God had had enough of the defiling of the holy things of God. You know, even though I preached out of Daniel chapter 5, and I know they are in the captivity at that point in time, there was a progression that you saw building that I really didn't have time to get into next uh, last week, but uh, as we kind of use this for an introduction to uh, this, this coming week, which kind of follows the same line, you find that as the nation of Israel begins to go into apostasy, as they lose sight of the things of God and all that God has for them, you begin to see the kings of Israel uh, begin to take the things that are in their treasuries the things that God gives to them. And when they get in a jam like Ahaz there in 2 Kings 16 or Joash did it too in 2 Chronicles 25, Asa in 2 Chronicles 16, and, and even Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18, when they get into a bind, when the Gentile nations are pressing on them because they're not doing what's right as a nation and the hand of God's protection is off of them. So these Gentile nations are coming down and oppressing them and they're having all kinds of issues. So to buy them off, to stay them off, they're actually taking the things that are in the treasury long before uh, they go into captivity and buying off uh, these Gentile nations, giving the holy things that God had given them. We talked about it last week that were so special and should represent to Israel the good hand of God and the blessings of God and all that God gave them. They're actually taking those things and giving them to the world system instead of God's hand of protection on them. And, and I made the parallel last week, pretty clear, I think, that it also is a picture of you and me. All of the, all of the principles and the promises, all of the blessings, everything that God has, has done for us, the special things that God has given you and put into your world, from the time you got saved, the blessings and the things that God did, those hidden things in your life that you keep and hold close to you, how that when we get out of fellowship with God, we actually then begin to give those things to, uh, to the world and taking all of those things that God gave us and now displaying them before the world, most of all, your body being the vessel of God and filling it with the things of this old world and taking those things that God has giving us and mocking God by giving them to the world system. We talked about the world, the flesh and the devil. And I showed you how that the world system is run by the devil to destroy you in your flesh. And, uh, you know, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh and the lust of eyes and the pride of life. It is not of the Father, but above the world. And, you know, the key to all that last week, if you remember, is, is uh, God wasn't really concerned as long as the king of Babylon, it was Belshazzar at this time, God wasn't really concerned if they just wanted to drink themselves to hell and have a great party. He leaves the world system to itself because, as the Bible says in John 8, 44, they are their father the devil, and the lust of your fathers they will do. He understood that. He let them go, just like he does the world today. And if the, if, if the world wants to be the world, then God will allow them to. But when, by design, the king of Babylon, in his boasting of how great he was and his taking captive the people of God, when he called for the holy vessels to bring into his drunken fest and to actually drink the slop and the filth of this world out of that holy vessels of God. God had enough. And the end of his kingdom and, uh, was spelled out by the finger of God on the wall, which we talked about the handwriting on the wall. And God killed him in that same chapter at the end of that passage. And I showed you how it's a great lesson for America. America. 
America is in that same position. The handwriting on the wall is clear for America. America is in that downward spiral, uh, spinning out of control. There is nothing on this planet that's going to fix America. And without cross this world, every nation, every country is in dire need. It's an absolute insane asylum run by the inmates. And you see it over and over again. And then, as I made the parallel to you and me, God's people, taking all the blessings and the salvation that God gave us, the good things, the plan, the principles, the, 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 the job, the ministry that God has for our lives. And literally, instead of doing God's work, we do the work of the world. Uh, you know, in the Bible, there's two great aspects to the finger of God. In Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, uh, the Bible tells us that the word of God came to us by the finger of God. When Moses came down, Moses had the tablets, and God, with the Bible says, by the finger of God, God wrote that Bible and gave it to Moses, the Ten Commandments. And then in Daniel chapter 5, you have the other aspect of God's finger, and that is the handwriting on the wall of God's judgment, that God is finished, he's had enough. And we as God's people uh, will have one or the other in our lives. You'll either have the finger of God and the Word of God you hold in your lap today, or you'll experience the finger of God on the handwriting on the wall that will, that will seal your fate of what God wants to do with you. So that was last week. And today, as I said, we're back in Proverbs chapter 25. And, and I, I, I don't know how to tell you this. I, I know. I, I'm the same way you. Last week was really rough. I mean, it was a hard message. Y'all needed it. I needed it. But, you know, I would like to move on now to spongy, warm, fuzzy things, but I can't help. I didn't write the book of Proverbs, and I'm certainly not in control of how this thing falls down. But we're right in Proverbs 25 again in verse 20, and this verse, I'm sorry, it's going to go hand in hand with last week. I wish. I wish we could just step over it and preach a nice snowflake message, you know, and, uh, you know, be the nowhere man going to the nowhere land and going nowhere. I wish we could do that. I can't. I got a plate of cards God deals me, and he dealt us a full hand today. So if uh, then now when we were going to pray here in a moment, now would be a good time for you to get sick and run out of here. Uh, it would be a good time to fake you get a phone call from your lawyer that your divorce papers just went through or, you're, you're, you know, you're, you just won the lottery. That would be a good one to you. I'll go with you on that one. And uh, somebody's got to protect you. But anyway, I'm sorry. It is what it is. So let's read Proverbs chapter 25. We're going to order brand new chairs for the church. I want you to know that. They will come with seat belts. <laughs> so uh, sit back, relax, buckle your seat belt. Uh, it's, going to be, it's going to be fun. I'll try to make it fun. I, I will. I, I, you know, it, uh, it, ever been in a fight where a guy just beat the fire out of you, but he made you laugh while he's doing it? <laughs> Proverbs 25, verse 20. As he that taketh away a garment... In cold weather, and as vinegar upon nitra be, so is he that singeth songs to a heavy heart. John Christensen, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the preaching this morning for me? If you pray for me, I know it'll be good. Thank you, John. Now, this first, <laughs> I got to tell you, when you read it, I know, I know, you'll say to yourself, now, how is there a message in this? I get it. This first doesn't look like much to the untrained eye, but it is a powerful principle and truth. And, you know, I try to teach you the Bible here, and I try to give you uh, everything you need to uh, learn the Bible and help you. We do it at everything, our Bible Institute, our people ministry, our one-on-one, -on -one, discipleship, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. All of those things, my own personal time with you, Thursday night, Sunday morning, I, I just, uh, you know, Thursday night's a great example. Wasn't Thursday night a great time together in, in, in working on the strongholds in, a, in our lives? See, it's things like that. But I want to tell you something. The real key to the Bible the real key to the Bible, if you're going to study it and you're going to learn it, 
is to look at the Bible through a trained eye. You know, that's true in everything. I had a friend of mine one time that was an FBI agent, and he worked in the Treasury Department, worked in the Treasury Department, and he was in a counterfeit uh, part. And we would talk back and forth, and I'd see him a couple of times a year, and I asked him one time, I said, man, these guys are always making counterfeit money. I, almost every week there's a new set of plates, and they look better and better and better. I said, how in the world do you keep up with studying all the fake $100 bills or $20 bills? How do you, you know, spend your whole life just looking at fake money to be able to say it's fake? And he kind of laughed and he said, well, he said, you might think that, but he said, that's not how we do it. He says, we train our eye to know what a real $100 bill looks like. And when you train your eye to know what a real $100 bill looks like, a phony will pop up just like that. And that's the key to the Bible. The key to the Bible is training your eye in what to look for. When you get to a passage like this or like Thursday night when we talked about that, it, there again, you read a story in the Old Testament. It's a great thrilling story. But who would have thought that within that story was the six steps to breaking a stronghold in your life and give you the victory in Christ Jesus through, and second, I think it's 2 Samuel chapter 5, wasn't it? Someplace back there. I mean, who would have thought that? That's what a trained eye does. You have to begin to look for the detail of the Bible that will unlock it. And it's so true of this passage here. Now, historically, this verse is, is dealing with the nation of Israel. We know that. Israel is out of fellowship and has been taken, as we saw last week, into captivity by Babylon, the world power, time frames about 606 B.C. And so we know that uh, the book of Ezekiel and the book of Daniel are both captivity books that deal with that time period. So historically, we know it's about actual events that, that actually uh, took place. Now, doctrinally, as it looks in a prophetic way, this will be the Jew which is in deep despair in the tribulation uh, and he's being hunted by the Antichrist and he's being held captive now by the worst world system the world will ever see uh, in the worst time the world will ever experience will be the tribulation period. But inspirationally, as it applies to me and you, using our threefold application of Scripture, it's aimed right at the child of God today who was saved and on their way to heaven, but as last week have been reclaimed by the world system. And now they, they face with a stronghold in their life. And it could be anything. It could be alcohol. It could be drugs. It could be pornography. It could be, it could be gambling. It could be possessions. It could be, it could be money. It could be any number of things. But they're going through life as a child of God and they're being held captive and in their life, there's no joy, there's no peace, there's no satisfaction, there's no souls being won, there's no blessings in their life. The blessings that they have, they're either buying or they're creating or they're manufacturing, but God isn't 100,000 light years around. There's no fellowship, there's no nothing. And they have come to the point last week, verse 4, that now they're praising the gods of gold, what they have the gods of silver, the gods of brass, the gods of, of iron, the gods of wood, the gods of stone. They're actually praising and looking at what they have physically instead of what they have spiritually. And to fully see this verse in, in, its own, in our own lives, we must first see it as it applies to the nation of Israel in history. And then we're going to use our little process, our little swing verses, and we're going to uh, come up and bring it up and show how it's a picture not only with Israel captive by the world system, but us too. Now, let me talk to you a minute about the book of Ezekiel. I love the Old Testament. A lot of people do. Old Testament looks like it's hard. It's really not if you use the trained eye and you just learn some things. Uh, the book of Ezekiel, both Ezekiel and Daniel, as we saw last week, are both books that are written during the captivity. You remember last week that I told you that when Nebuchadnezzar comes down to take Jerusalem, he does it in three stages, or three sieges, I should say. He comes down at 606 B.C., and that's the first captivity. And then he comes down again. Then he comes down a third time. 
And I told you last week, Daniel goes into the first captivity, but Ezekiel goes into the second, goes in down in the second captivity. And this was why a book of Ezekiel is such an incredible, important book, because it shows the judgment of God not only on the nation of Israel. In fact, the book is broken down as God preaching judgment to different nations, but to the Gentile nations. And in Ezekiel 1.1, we see this second siege and this second captivity beginning to unfold. And I want to read for you Ezekiel chapter 1. Just want you to follow along with me today, and, and we'll get back to our verse in a moment here. But i got to set the stage for you so you'll be able to see it. Now he says in Ezekiel 1.1, Now it came to pass in the thirteenth year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, I was among the captives. There it is. I was among the captives by the river of Shebar, that the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. Now this is Ezekiel taken captivity down by the river of Babylon, Shebar, and suddenly God shows him a vision. And what comes the rest of this book is what God is showing him and he's writing it down. You need to know that. Now the first thing I want you to know is that is that Ezekiel is among those that are taken captive by the world system of Babylon. And of course, uh, uh, and they're down there by the river, uh, down by Babylon. Uh, the world run by the devil has taken the children of God into captivity just like so many of God's people today. God called Israel out. I've always thought this was amazing. In Exodus chapter 12, God called Israel out. You ought to go back and read that account from Exodus 1 to Exodus chapter 12. The absolute incredible miracles, the power of God to bring them out of Egypt. They were helpless. They were absolutely powerless. Egypt was the most powerful uh, uh, nation on the planet. And they're completely consumed. They're slaves down in Egypt. And when you read Exodus chapter 1 through Exodus chapter 12, oh, Pharaoh is really putting them under a bondage, just like the world was putting you under bondage. But you know what happened in chapter 12. God sent him a deliverer, and that deliverer was Moses. And Moses had him put the blood over the door on the side post and the lintel. And God brought him out of Egypt that night. You know what that's a picture of. It's a picture of the day that you and I were held captive by the world, and God sent us a deliverer. And that deliverer was the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came down, and through you putting the blood in your life, God brought you out of Egypt, the world, just like he brought just like he brought the nation of Israel out. Now, here we are. Here we are, many years later. Oh, Israel has been through some things. And now, where God brought Israel out in Exodus chapter 12, now the world reclaims them in 606 B.C. Where God brought them out of the world, now the devil sucks them back into the world. And it's just like a lot of God's people. God delivered you from the world. Why would you allow the world to reclaim you? Why would you give in to a system that wants to put you under bondage, put your children under bondage, put your, your, your whole life under bondage, and then at the end, destroy everything that God had for you? And just like so many of God's people today, Israel was reclaimed by the world system. And the world system will reclaim you if it can. Now, to complete our picture here I, 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 uh, 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 of you and me in our captivity, I want to look at a verse that will go right along with this passage today, and it's found in the book of Psalms. And I want you to come over to Psalms 137. The first four verses will be adequate. Psalms 137, verses 1 through 4. By the rivers of Babylon. Here we are. See, we're at the same spot. We just read in Ezekiel chapter 1, down in Babylon in captive. Now here we are again. By the river of Babylon. Same time period. There we sat down. Yea, we wept and remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing 
us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Wow, that's an incredible passage. Now there's Israel in the captivity of the world system again. God once delivered them. He brought them out of Egypt, the type of the world. And then in period of time, years later, they get sucked back in. And now here they are, the chosen nation of God, the chosen people of God, the people that God chose in the Old Testament to bring salvation to the earth through. Now reclaimed by the world system. And there is God's people who just like Israel, God saved you for a purpose. God saved you for a reason. God intended through you to reach the world. He intended to get you saved, bring you out of the world, grow you up, give you everything that you need to be, everything that God wanted you to be. And what happened? We got reclaimed by the world system. Now, verse 1 says, by the rivers of Babylon. They're completely now out of the land that God had for them. The land God had for them was the promised land. It's called the promised land because of the fact that uh, it's, uh, it, you've got to keep the promises of God to stay in that land. Obviously, they haven't kept the promises of God, so God rooted them out. It's called Canaan's land. It's called Canaan's land because if you go way back in history, that was the land that the Canaanites had. And when God through David, or David through God, kicked them all out, it became known as Canaan's land. It's known as Beulah land. Beulah means married, wife. And Beulah land is a picture of the relationship that God had with Israel as Israel being like the wife of God. It's called the land of milk and honey. It's called the land of milk and honey, the land of plenty, because they had everything they wanted there. Milk and honey to this day is, is, is synonymous with blessings and happy and, fill, and fruitful and having everything. The land of, of milk and honey. That's the land God gave them. Now they're, they're gone from that land. There's no more promised land for them. There's no more Canaan's land. Forget Beulah land. And no more land of the milk and honey. Now they're, they're down there in the middle of this godless system. The most godless system, pagan system in the history of the Old Testament. It says they were sat down and they wept. They wept when they remembered Zion. I got to stop here and talk to you for a minute. Let me tell you something. When you get into that foreign land and you, the world reclaims you and it pulls you out from what God has for you and you lose the land and the blessings and the milk and the honey that God has for you, both a type and the word of God, I want to tell you something. There will come a time in the midst of your drunken parties. There will come a time in the midst of your, your, your New Year's Eve fest. There will come a time in your life when you're doing everything that you have that God will get you alone. You'll have that private time and you will stop and for maybe just a moment of time, maybe just a glimmer of a minute, you'll feel and understand what you really lost. The Holy Spirit of God inside you will be so grieved. The Holy Spirit of God inside you will be so, so uh, overwhelmed by him having to live in a temple that he wanted holiness and glory and praise and he gets booze and drugs and the filth of this world. You cannot tell me that they sat down by the river and when you have a quiet moment and you remember Zion... You'll ask yourself, how in the world did I get in this mess? You'll ask yourself, and you remember what you've lost, what you've given up. It's a picture of the reality of our walking away from God. Seeing now what you lost that you didn't care about when you were in the pleasures of sin for a season. Reality at some point, maybe just for a moment of time, reality begins to set in now. You realize what you gave up. You realize that you lost your marriage. You realize that you've lost your son or your daughter, your family. You realize that you've lost your ministry. You realize in some cases you've lost your health. For what? For what? For the world system. 
You took the promised land, Canaan's land, Beulah land, the land of milk and honey, for what? Verse 2 says, We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. Harps once used to sing the praises of God. Harps once used to give honor and glory to God and praise Him. Now because you're in a strange land, you hang those harps by the river of Babylon, the world system, on the willow trees, from which to this day, based on this, we call it the weeping willow. Gone! Gone! Gone is the joy, 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 joy down in your heart. God, God is standing on the promises that cannot fail. Gone is glory to his name. Gone is how great thou art. Gone is it is well with my soul. And the reality of what and who you once were and what you had Now in 2019, just like in 606 B.C., the reality sets in. This is what I lost. This is what I had, and I gave it up. And if you're sitting out there this morning and find yourself in that situation, let me just tell you something. There's plenty of company for you because there are literally hundreds of thousands of men and women who are saved and on their way to heaven, who got reclaimed by the world system. Look at verse 3. For these that carried us away captive required of us a song. It says, they required of us mirth. They said, come on, sing us one of those songs of Zion. Now see that? Not only does the world system take you, reclaim you, destroy you, ruin your life, ruin your everything about you, then when you're down by the river held firmly captive by it, now it makes fun of you. That's some system you're serving, friend. At the end of your life when you've given it everything and you've forsaken God and you got reclaimed by the world and you down there on your deathbed or you're down there and you're sick and you need help and you need this and you need that, all the world's going to do is turn their back on you and make fun of you. Oh, I love this. For these that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us. That's a great 2018, 2020 thing. What'd you do this weekend? Oh man, I got wasted. That's what the world does. The world will waste you. The world will waste your life. It'll waste the salvation that God gave you. It'll waste your family. It'll waste your marriage. It'll waste your health. It'll waste the truth that God gave you. It will waste your relationship with God. It will lay you waste and take everything from you that God gave you. And then when it does, sit there when you're in the ash heap down there in the river by Sebar of Babylon have lost everything and you're feeling the weight and you're remembering what you gave up. Then it will mock you and say, why don't you sing me one of them old songs of Zion? Hank Williams was a great country singer back in the 50s, long before you were born. I was born in the 50s, so I was three years old when he died. He died on January 1st, 65 years ago this year. He was 29 years of age. Hank Williams made famous the song, I Saw the Light. Great song. And all around the country he went. And everybody that listened to him thought that he was such a Christian that he was, here he was, an entertainer that sang about the great light. He was the biggest dopehead, boozer, fornicator you ever saw in your life. He died. 
He died on January 1st, 1953 in Steubenville, Ohio. They picked him up in a cab to take him to some performance and he was found back there and he was driving along and, and the cab driver looked back and he saw he had Hank Williams and he says, hey, Mr. Williams, will you sing me some of that song, I Saw the Light? You know what the great man who made that song famous said? You know what the man that, that made that song and sang it all across this world said? He looked up at the last breath of his life before he went to hell and he says, there is no light. Thank you for that testimony, brother. And they found him dead in the back of that cab. January 1st, 1953. And that word will waste you. It'll take everything from you. It'll strip you of everything that God gave you. And then when you're destitute, lost, down there, just hanging on by a thread, it won't be the world that helps you. Praise the Lord that no matter how far we get from God and how many stupid things we do and what dumb stuff we do, God is always willing to bring us out of that captive land if we're willing to come. Problem is, as we talked about Thursday night, you get so deep into it, it becomes a stronghold in your life. And you just don't break it. And Israel's answer is classic. That is so absolutely true for us today. Verse 4 says, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And one more time from last week, you can't because you can't mix the holy things of God with the ungodly things of the world. And the majority of God's people today are in that strange land. That's why you can't or won't sing the great hymns of the Philadelphian church age. You won't rock it out and sing it out power in the blood because you've got an NIV that they took the blood out of. You won't stand up and sing, am I a soldier of the cross because you're a conscientious objector. You couldn't sing holy, holy, holy because your life is about the farthest thing from a holy life that you could have. You can never sing, have thine own way. You're a Burger King Christian. You have to have it your way. <laughs> You'd never be able to sing victory in Jesus. Because there's no victory in your life. And I want to tell you, it's hard to sing, it is well with my soul. When you're living like hell within your soul. Yes, I am in full preaching mode at this point. So I'll tell you what they do in Christianity today. You bring in a Christian rock band. You bring in a big praise band. You bring in the worldly system to God's church because you can't sing the Lord's song in a strange land. So you bring the music of the strange land into church to make you feel better. Amen. That's not called a platform anymore. It's called a stage. They move the platform out that should be in the middle because for hundreds of years the pulpit was in the middle of the, of the platform because it focused the center of that church was the preaching of the Word of God. Now we move it aside so the guy breakdancing won't hurt himself smashing into it. Now you got the singers, the dancers. Now you got the smoke coming up from behind. Now you got fire shooting up. Oh, a precursor to the great white throne judgment. I saw a guy one time break dancing on the platform. Stage, excuse me. They do everything the world does. You know why? Because they have to replace the songs of Zion with the godless filth of the world system. And you know why they do that? You know why they have to do that? Because it's impossible to sing the Lord's song when you're living in Babylon. Now, just let me say this. The key to any church and its spiritual temperature, and I know there's a lot of things that you look at, but to me there's always two main things that I always look for. One is the book that they preach and they believe and that they love. 
The other one's a song in their heart. The way they sing. Psalms 40, verses 1 through 3 says this. I waited patiently for the Lord and inclined unto me, and he heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God, and many shall see it in fear and trust in the Lord. Now that's the day you got saved. And I want to tell you something. The day God brought you out of Egypt, it all should have changed. It changed so much for the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 12 that God up to that point counted the beginning of their year at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now he changed that, and in 12, 1, 2, and 3, it becomes that the Passover begins to go. You know what that's significant of? It's significant that when God brought them out of the world system of Egypt, it all changed. And when God brought you out of that horrible pit, out of the, remember those days, do you? You remember when that horrible pit had a hold on you? Remember when the miry clay wanted to suck you down into the lake of fire? You remember those days? And you inclined, you called out under God, and he inclined unto you. You know what? He didn't have to. He could have said, burn in hell. He could have said, you messed me over all these years. I tried to help you. You're on your own. He could have done that. He should have done that. And praise God he didn't. You know what he did? He brought you and me out of that horrible pit. And it was a horrible pit. Out of the miry clay. And then you know what he did? He set my feet upon a rock. That rock is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an unmovable rock. It's the rock of God, and God put my feet upon it. Now, you know what he did when he put your feet on your rock? Oh, I'll tell you what. He established your going because you were going the wrong way. He didn't just give you a direction. He established you. Verse 3 says, he put a new song in my mouth. Even praise unto our God, and many shall see it in fear and trust in the Lord. The day you got saved, it all changed, or it was supposed to. Out of that horrible pit, out of that miry clay, and he set your feet upon a rock, and he put a new song in your mouth, even praise unto God. You got a new birth, you got a new nature, you got a new name, you got a new heart, and you got a new song. Now, this is why in most churches you go to a day, the song service, is a joke. Hey, I've been in some churches, brother, that the song service, they lift the roof off, man. I mean, I'm sitting up there ready to preach, and I mean they're singing power in the blood. They're singing, I mean, they are just lifting the rafters. We don't have a choir. We were going to have one, but we chose the choir and the baptistry, and the baptistry won out. Though, if we ever get a bunch of Church of Christ people, I guess they could be in here and be the choir. <laughs> you know why I won't have a choir? You know why I don't need a choir? Because you're the choir. Amen. We're not here to entertain you. We're not here to give you a laugh or a smile, though some of the stupid things I do does require laughter at times or you'll hurt my feelings. I get that. But we're not here to entertain you. We are here to give glory to God, praise his holy name together. And in most cases and in most churches, nobody sings. They're all in the back talking. You'll find in most churches, the deacons who ought to be the ones that are in it all are the farthest one from it. They're all, they're all there talking about this, talking about that. And let me tell you something. When this group gets together to lift up a song, it's based on the new song in your heart. You ought to lift the rafters in this place. You know why we don't? It's hard to sing the Lord's song in a strange land. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. A new song in your heart based on the word of God in your heart. And boy, when you as a child of God or I as a child of God are living in a strange land, it just it means nothing to us. At, like the Bible, it means nothing to us anymore. 
And you know what happened? I'll tell you what happened, brother. I'll tell you what happened, sister. You hung your harp on the willow tree. And as the world says, when it came to God, Christianity, what God did for you, you just hung it up. Now, our text today, come on back to Proverbs 25. Our text today, he uses two examples. And I had to give you that first before this made any sense to you. He uses two examples in our passage today uh, to illustrate this truth. A heavy heart and a song. And boy, are they great examples. Now, first of all, he says, As he that taketh away a garment in cold weather, so is he that singeth songs to a heavy heart. Now, in life, there's nothing worse than being cold and being not able to get warm. Somebody taking your garment, your coat, and it's cold outside. You're sitting there, standing there, shivering. Like when you get into your car to go someplace and it's 15 degrees out and it takes your heater an hour and a half to heat up. You're sitting there freezing to death. Five minutes seems like five hours and you just shiver no matter what you got on. My kids are famous for this and my grandkids. They never take enough coats anywhere. I have, back of my truck, I have four or five jackets back there just for them. They wear shorts when it's February. They wear T-shirts when it's snowing outside. We'll have an outside activity, and they'll wear some thin little jacket that a mosquito could fly through and not break his wings. And there it is, Grandpa, Dad, always got looking ahead, and in the back of my truck, as we speak, there'll be three or four jackets back there. People say, why do you buy so many jackets? Because I give them to my kids and they never give them back. I don't know what happens to them. (laughs) And in life, there's nothing worse than being cold. Someone taking your garment and then you shivering and freezing and have to have no warmth to comfort you, to keep you. And when you, we we get, get that heavy heart from Uh, losing our fellowship and we lose the warmth and the comfort of the God's word against that icy blast of the wind from the world through the world, the flesh and the devil. It will leave you in the most miserable condition ever. And you'll be like our first illustration here. Somebody takes your garment. Now, I I, want to say this to you. Trained eye, That's not only a reference to you losing the warmth of the Word of God, which you'll see here in just a moment. It's not only a picture of that, but it's also because in Psalms 19.6, the Word of God in the Bible and God are likened to heat. It keeps you warm because the world is likened to the cold. And the Word of God warms you up in this old world and keeps you there and puts a garment around you. And over there in Isaiah, it's called the garment of salvation. But also over there in Revelation 16, 15, you're told that nobody takes your garment. That garment's not only a reference to you losing the warmth of God's Word down here and being cold and destitute, it's also a picture of the coming judgment seat of Christ where you have no garment. In Haggai chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says this, Now therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he earneth wages, earneth wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, says it twice, consider your ways. Boy, if that isn't the world's system today, you sow much, but you bring in little. When it comes to God, oh, your bank account's full, your pantry's full, Your garage is full. Everything you have in life is filled up and full. But when it comes to spiritual things, you've worked so much, you've sowed so much, but you bring in little. You know why? Because you sowed the wrong things. And then it goes into here. You eat, but you not have enough. You can't get enough because there's no satisfying the flesh. So you eat, you never get enough. You drink and you're never filled. And he says that you get clothes, you can buy all the clothes that you want, but you can't get warm. 
because there isn't anything physical on this planet that ever will take the place of the spiritual coldness in your life when you lose your relationship with God. And then he says, what a telling verse. He that earneth wages, earneth wages to put into a bag with holes. All your life, you're going through life, making all kinds of money, buying all kinds of things, doing whatever you want to do. Possessions is the name of your game. And you got this bag and you're putting it in. Oh, I got this. Oh, I got this. Oh, I want four of these. Get this. Oh, I got this. Oh, I got this. Oh, I got this. Oh, I got this. And when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, you're holding that bag and everything you put in that bag is gone because that bag had holes. You know, that's a life without God. A life without God is like a bag with a hole in it. Everything you put in it falls out. And at the end, you have nothing. God people just like that. They're cold. They're miserable. They're destitute. And today they depend on somebody else for their spiritual well-being. It's just that simple. Now, the second illustration is this. As vinegar upon nitra, or nitrate, as we would say it, as vinegar upon nitra, so is he that singeth songs to a heavy heart. Now, the first one was somebody takes your garment and you can't get warm against the cold blast of the world. And as I said, Isaiah 61.10, that garment is called the garment of salvation. It's a picture of you getting saved. Now, here we have the illustration of vinegar and nitra, nitrate. Now, vinegar, we know, is a byproduct of apples, and it is used in cooking in other situations, raspberry vinaigrette or, you know, vinegar, whatever, and uh, we, we use it that way. The nitra here, the word nitra is, an old, is the old Latin word, and our word today would be nitra, uh, or it's a potassium nitrate or sodium nitrate. And it's a chemical that when you mix it with vinegar, it will foam up and give an absolutely putrefying, terrible smell. You say, well, what has that got to do with the Bible? I'm glad you asked. Here we go. (laughs) Now, in the book of Song of Solomon, the church, you and me, and our relationship with Christ is likened unto a flower, a garden. It's likened to perfume. It's likened to ointments and spices that give off a great aroma. In fact, if you would come through the Song of Solomon from chapter 1 and chapter 8, you would see this. You'd find it in 1, 3, 1, 13, 1, 14. You'd find it in 2, 1 through 3, 3, 6, 4, 12 through 15, 5, 1, 5, 5, 5, 13, 6, 11, 7, 13, 8, 14, through the whole book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, our relationship with Christ is likened to a pleasant smell, an aroma given off like flowers, spices, cinnamon, things that give off an aroma that is pleasing and pleasant. Now, let me take it one step further. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Now, this is a great passage. If you don't have this marked in your Bible, you need to put this in here and give you the notes here that I'm about to give you. It says, Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. And maketh manifest the savor. That's a smell. Savor the aroma. Of his knowledge by us in every place. Then somebody is savoring the smell that has to do with the knowledge of God. Now watch. For we, you and me, born again, saved Christians, men and women in the church age. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. Okay? You got saved, Christ in you. And because Christ is in you, and you have a relationship with Christ, Song of Solomon, that relationship gives off a sweet savor, like a garden, like a flower, like an ointment, like a spice that smells pleasant as an aroma to God because of our relationship with Him. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and them that perish. I want you to see this. To one, we are the savor of death unto death, and the other, the savor of life unto life, and who is sufficient for these things. Do you know what he's saying? 
He's saying that because you're saved and I'm saved and Christ is living in us, and we have the relationship in Song of Solomon that is likened to a perfume or an ointment or something, a garden or flowers, uh, what he's saying is, is that every time you open up your mouth and talk about the Lord Jesus, every time you, through that relationship you have with God, talk about the Lord, it's a sweet savor in the nostrils of God. And I want you to see it's, only, it's not only a sweet savor if the person gets saved. I want you to see that. He says it's a sweet savor to them that are lost and to them that are saved. It's not just a God gets a sweet savor in his nostrils when that person gets saved. Now, God wants everybody saved. God is not willing that any should perish. And there's rejoicing in heaven. At the, but I want you to know that your personal relationship is, needs to be a sweet savor in the nostrils of God and it is when you have the right relationship. And to God, it doesn't matter if the person gets saved or they get stay lost. That's on them. What matters is when you speak of Christ's death on the cross and his glorious resurrection and the price that was paid, it brings up in God's remembrance the sacrifice that God made. And it's a sweet in his nostrils. But when we are of a heavy heart, because we are a captain of Babylon, the world system, when we have filled up the holy things of God in our lives with the filthy, godless garbage of this world, through the work, the world, the flesh, and the devil, being in a strange land, now that sweetness of God in our lives, that warmth of God's word has become a stinking mess. It's now a stench in the nostrils of God, and it grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Why? Because the very vessels that God gave you, the precious promises, the principles that God put in your temple, you, like Belshazzar last week, took those things out, filled them with the filth of this world, and instead of being a, a, a sweet savor in the nostrils of God, we're now a stench. I probably heard 500 messages on grieving the Holy Spirit of God in my time. I don't think I've ever heard one of them that was really biblical. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby you are sealed under the day of redemption. Every message I ever heard preached about the fact that you grieve God's Holy Spirit by the things that you do. That's not true. That's not down to the lowest common denominator yet. You don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by the things you do. You grieve the Holy Spirit of God by the way you smell. Every morning he gets his first whiff of you. Now this is why, please don't take this wrong. There's a lot of things we can learn from this. This is why women type of the church Always wear perfume. Somewhere along the line, men realized they stunk too, so they put on cologne. But it's always women. It's Chanel number five. Midnight Passion. Holstein. And, you know, any woman worth her salt. And I'm not, this is not a criticism. You know, I know there's a lot of churches that say that women shouldn't fix their hair, shouldn't wear makeup. Well, that ain't me. <laughs> I'm with old Bob Jones Sr., brother. If the barn door needs painting, you go ahead and paint that sucker. <laughs> I mean, you don't want to get carried away. You don't want to look like a raccoon hunter in possum season, you know. <laughs> but it's Okay. It's like brill cream. A little dabble, do you? <laughs> Woman will sit there. She'll fix her hair, you know. And she'll put her makeup on. And, you know, I mean, uh, I'll tell you, I, 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 you guys, you know, I get it. Guys do the same thing when they work on cars in their body shop. <laughs> same system. And they'll, they'll put it all on there and get that, get that stuff just right so it blends with their, their face that it doesn't look like you're a clown, but it, it doesn't, it's, you're not dead. You got rosy cheeks and you put the lipstick on and you get different colors. I mean, there's more colors lipstick on the planet than there are languages. <laughs> you, 
you get those things. You know? I knew a girl one time that had her eyebrows tattooed. Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine that going into the guy? He's got a big old biker, you know, got I love mama on his chest, you know, and anchors all over here, you know, and I love Jesus. And Gal comes in, she says, he says, what can I do for you, little lady? I'd like to get a tattoo. Well, we got a whole bunch of them over here. How'd you like one over here? Uh, uh, you know, uh, this one over here, or this one here, or here's a heart one over here. And how about a Jesus cross? You know, that would be all, they're all really popular today. She says, no, I just like to have my eyebrows tattooed. Make them look like they're real. Well, that'd be a job. I'm telling you, man, I've been going to get my mustache done that way. (laughs) But I'll tell you, you know, or this is always popular. Like like really petite women do this. That's so how you go out to meet the guy and you've got midnight passion on. You got under a clear blue sky. You got, you know, you got, you got, you got, you know, obsession. Yeah. You sell any of these, Gail? No. No, no, no. no. You sell Holstein. You sell Holstein, though, don't you? No, no, no. What's that? Is it Holstein? I thought it was Holstein. Holstein's a cow, isn't it? You want to smell good. I get it. I get it. You know, guys do the same thing. They buy cologne. But my point is this. We don't like our natural smell. We try to, from a world standpoint, take the natural smell away and put on a smell that has been created someplace to make us smell good. So when you get close to somebody, they, oh. I'm obsessed, obsession. <laughs> you know, my, I don't know, and I probably shouldn't say this, but I can say it because of my mom. Yeah. Uh, you know, my mom was 70, 80 years old. For, when, you get, when a woman hits 70 or 80 years old, they all buy the perfume at the same place. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> it all smells the same. My mom's been dead five or six years, and I thought, sure, she was in a drugstore the other day. <laughs> I, Mom. <laughs> she wasn't. <laughs> I, you see, I'll tell you what. In Christianity, we try to do the same thing. But I want to tell you something. You can go out and buy all the perfume in the world and smell good. And I'm, I'm all for that. I think... I think guys and gals ought to look the best, smell the best. I, I get it. I understand it. I'm not fighting it. I'm just kind of having fun with it. Bottom line is this. You can't fake that with Christianity. You just can't. The smell's the smell. And you can always tell when somebody's out of fellowship with God. The smell's not right. I mean, it's just it's something, you know, we say it all the time. Something doesn't smell right here. Something rotten in Denmark. I don't know what Denmark's got to have. I know being rotten, but that's what they say. You know, there's something right. You can just tell. Because, let me say, when you got the joy, joy, joy down in your heart, everybody knows it. And when that joy is gone, everybody knows it. You know, and you know, I'll go up to somebody and say, hey, I haven't seen you for a while. Where you been? I ain't been here. <laughs> Master of the obvious, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just the way it is. Turning the garden of God. Now, I'm going to tell you something else. There's a lot in here. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of God, Eden, now that was a physical place. Do you know it was perfect? It was perfect weather. The animals were perfect. There was no wild animals. I, I can only imagine what the tropical forest gardens must have been like. I know I have been offshore on the uh, on some of the islands out there, and at night you could actually smell the lotus blossoms coming off the off the, into the into the wind. 
I wonder what the Garden of Eden must have been like. Could you imagine going to sleep every night with that incredible fragrance? Waking up in the morning. I mean, the best we can get if we can hope for is scrambled eggs and bacon. I mean, this, you know, and coffee brewing. This, could you imagine waking up, going to bed at night, hearing the animals out there who would never hurt you, growling, running around. You're all cuddled up knowing that you're, it, it, nothing's going to hurt you. And you breathe in, and, oh, that fragrance of the garden of God. Do you know how that all changed in Genesis chapter 3? You realize that night they had to build campfires to keep the animals away. That night when they went to pick a rose that day, he pricked himself with a thorn. Everything changed. But I won't tell you, the first Adam brought death into this world, but the second Adam took death out. And just as physically Adam and Eve had a Garden of Eden, in a spiritual sense, your Christian life, I, my Christian life, ought to be the Garden of Eden. We live in a perfect world with God because this world doesn't matter. He takes care of every need. He brings everything into our life. And the smell of a holy relationship with God is unbelievable. I don't have to go and pick my food. It's laying right on the ground in the Word of God. God just gives it to me. Adam and Eve, when they got kicked out of the garden, Bible doesn't say this, Adam and Eve, when they got kicked out of the garden, I spent, I guarantee you for the next, maybe the rest of their lives, they sat around at night and wept because the reality had set in of what they had lost. And they would have given anything in this world to get back into that garden. Here it comes. They God saved you. He put you in that garden. And you just want to do everything to get out of it. Go figure. Up on the door, as you come into the church, Nancy's Flower Shop, of course, is up there. And on the door is a little sign. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't. Probably haven't. You haven't got trained eye yet. But it goes along with her flower shop. Because she sells flowers, beautiful flowers. And I saw that uh, last year at some point, and uh, I, I'm, I hope they never take it down because I, I enjoy it. But on that little sign coming in, it says this. If I had a flower for every time I thought of you, I would walk through my garden forever. You know, that's our relationship with God. The garden of God in your life and my life goes on forever because it's a spiritual garden. It's our garden of Eden. It isn't the physical one that got trashed. It's the one that God reclaimed and gave us. And you can walk through every flower, every promise, everything that God has given you makes up your garden. And the smell, the aroma from it is unbelievable. And that's what a child of God ought to do. We ought to walk through the garden of God forever. Our fellowship with him. The warmth of God's word and my relationship with him. The virtuous woman in Proverbs chapter 21. Picture of us, the church. Based on the wisdom that she got, Proverbs 1 through 30. It says that she seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. That should be us. It says that she rises while it is yet night, picture the church age, and giveth meat to her household. That should be us. Verse 16 says, she considereth the field. And then it says that she plants a vineyard after paying the price to buy that field. That should be us. Bible says in verse 20 that she stretcheth out her hand to the poor. That should be us. And verse 21 says that she's not afraid when the snow comes, the cold. 
She's not afraid of the snow for her household. For all her house are clothed in scarlet. She made the right clothes for him. That should be a, it says, strength and honor are her clothing. And she shall rejoice in the time to come. And the reference there is to the judgment seat of Christ. Now that's a picture in Proverbs 25, 20. Now you understand how those two illustrations fit going through those other verses. Our relationship with Christ should be that garden that every principle God gave us, everything that God put in our world makes a flower and we walk through that garden forever. And the sweet savor in the nostrils of God is our relationship with him. But oh, no, no, no. We have to bring in the stench of the world. a sweet smell, and a sweet savor in God's presence that will keep us warm like a garment through the coldest winter. And that, my friend, is worth singing about. Let's pray.